I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, AMD trusts the processing. Shares are higher as sales jump 70% year on year. That includes Xilinx, of course. Plus, Airbnb says investors here to stay. Profitability gets better. Bookings rebound. Stocks a bit higher. Uh, but all eyes are on the ride-hailing giants this morning. Lyft shares plummet as the company says it has to spend more to get drivers back on the road. Once again, chasing growth with some big incentives, and will Uber have to follow? The company pushed up earnings to this morning to get in front of all of that, and Derek he says he doesn't think so. He says that's a Lyft problem. Our Q1 results resoundingly affirm that we're on a strong path emerging out of the pandemic. Our focus on profitable growth, product innovation, and operational excellence over the last two years has set us apart from the pack. Our mobility team is demonstrating phenomenal execution, growing both demand and supply faster than competitors, and rapidly innovating to roll out new creative offerings, all while delivering record margins despite the macro turbulence that we all see. Uber shares down about 11% or so. It's going to take you back about a year and a half. D, you raised this this morning. Investors asking just how durable the ride-sharing model is. And you listened to the calls last night, which you tweeted were, were tough. They, the Lyft one was really, really tough. The Uber one this morning was a little bit better, but there was some caution at the end. And, you know, what's a Lyft problem now? What may be a Lyft problem now is likely to be an Uber problem in the future. So if Lyft is spending, it begs the question, is Uber going to have to because drivers are able to switch so easily despite the kind of rewards and loyalty programs between the two apps. Um, what I do think was interesting, I spoke to Dara Khazar-Shahi after the earnings call and I wanted a bit of clarification. You know, they reached adjusted EBITDA profitability. They're expected to reach free, free cash flow. Oh, we're going to get to the president. Deep, yeah, we'll you, take the president here and take a listen. On a lot of things, but uh, I got 600 Olympians waiting out there for me. If you keep me too long, they'll rush the place, and uh, I'll kid them aside. I, uh, this week, my administration released uh, new information that contains that we're on track to cut the federal deficit by another another $1.5 trillion by the end of this fiscal year. The biggest decline in a single year ever in American history. The biggest decline on top of us having a $350 billion drop in the deficit last year, my first year as president. We also learned that for the first time since 2016, the Treasury Department is planning to pay down the national debt issued to the public this quarter. And for all the talk the Republicans make about deficits, it didn't happen a single quarter under my predecessor. Not once. The bottom line is the deficit went up every year under my predecessor before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And it's gone down both years since I've been here. Period. That's, they're the facts. And why is it important? Because bringing down the deficit is one way to ease inflationary pressures in an economy where a consequence of a war and gas prices and oil and food and it all, it's a different world right this moment because of Ukraine and Russia. We reduced federal borrowing and we helped combat inflation. This process is a great deal, uh, is good news, but it didn't happen by itself. It, it, the previous administration increased the deficit every year it was in office, in part because of its reckless $2 trillion tax cut. Now you're tired of hearing me saying but that, but a $2 trillion tax cut that was not paid for. 
was not paid for. And a tax cut that largely benefited the biggest corporations, 55 of which earned $40 billion in profits and paid not a single penny in income tax in 2020. And wealthiest Americans, like the billionaires, who on average pay just 8% in federal taxes. The previous administration not only ballooned the deficit, it undermined the watchdogs, the inspector generals, whose job it was to keep the pandemic relief funds from being wasted. Remember, at the time, I kept saying, they're going to fire this, the inspector generals. Well, they fired the inspector general. And in my administration, those watchdogs are back. The Justice Department has a chief prosecutor for pandemic fraud who's going to go after the criminals who stole billions, billions of relief money meant for small businesses and American families, but never got to them, got in the pockets of criminals. When I came to office, we took a different approach across the board. With the American Rescue Plan and other actions, we started to grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Rescue checks and tax cuts for working families that gave them just a little bit of breathing room and put food on the table and a roof over their heads. Remember the first year, all those long lines of automobiles lined up and going through a parking lot just to get a box of food in their trunk? Those, all that, we put a vac we got vaccination shots in arms that helped us go from 2 million Americans who'd been vaccinated to more than 220 million Americans fully vaccinated. We made it easy for millions of Americans to sign up for coverage under the Affordable Care Act, saving them an average of $2,400 a year. As a result of these and other economic recovery plans, we recovered faster than projected. A record 6.7 million jobs created last year, the most in the first year of any president in American history, and the fastest economic growth in any year in nearly four decades. And looking ahead, I have a plan to reduce the deficit even more, which will help reduce inflationary pressures and lower everyone's costs for families. Look, it's a plan that lets Medicare negotiate prices of prescription drugs, as they do with the, with the Department of Veterans Affairs. We can cap the price of insulin at $35 instead of the hundreds of dollars, even $1,000 a month for some families. And my plan provides tax credits to utility companies to generate clean energy. And those companies are required to pass those savings on to families. I met with about a dozen of those utility CEOs here in the White House. And they confirmed this plan will lower energy bills for families immediately. My plan includes tax credits for consumers to purchase electric or fuel cell vehicles, new or used, which will save the typical driver about $80 a month not having to pay for gas at the pump. Tax credits for folks to buy solar panels and heat pumps <clears throat> and more efficient windows and doors for their homes. Estimated savings, $500 per year on average. And we can do these things by making sure that no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a single penny more in federal taxes. All we're asking is that the wealthiest Americans and the largest corporations begin to pay their fair share, at least part of their fair share. You've heard me say it before, I'm a capitalist. I believe you should be able to make much money as you legally can, but just pay your fair share. There's no reason why a billionaire should be paying a lower tax rate than a teacher or a firefighter. That's in sharp contrast to what today's Republican Party is offering. And if, I, if, if they hadn't put this in print, you'd think I was making it up. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, United States Senator, who's leading the Republican National Senatorial Campaign Committee, released what he calls the ultra-MAGA agenda. 
It's a MAGA agenda, all right. Let me tell you about this ultra-MAGA agenda. It's extreme, as most MAGA things are. It will actually raise taxes on 75 million American families, over 95 percent of whom make less than $100,000 a year. Among the hardest hit, working families, kids with folks. Imagine you're a family of four and you don't pay, you don't make enough money to have federal taxes. You're not because you don't, you don't make enough money to pay them. You pay all your taxes, but you just don't make enough. And under this new plan, this tax plan, the ultra mega agenda, while big corporations and billionaires are going to pay nothing more, the working class folk are going to pay a hell of a lot more. And it goes further than that. This extreme Republican agenda calls for Congress. Now, this is, I'm not making this up either. You ought to really think about this. It requires a vote, if it were to pass, every five years, the Congress would have to vote to reinstate or eliminate Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Social Security is something seniors have paid in for their whole life. And it has to be reauthorized? Has to be reauthorized every five years? Look, again, it's hard to make this up, but then again, it's a mega agenda. You know, uh, meanwhile, millionaires and billionaires and corporations skate by. Imagine that. Just imagine that. I think it is truly outrageous. I've offered a different plan, a plan rooted in American values of fairness and decency. Wealthy folks and corporations will pay a little more. Billionaires will have to pay a minimum tax. And again, most importantly, no one making less than $400,000 will pay a penny more in federal taxes. We're going to protect and strengthen Social Security and Medicare not put it on the block every five years. Let me remind you again, I reduced the federal deficit. All the talk about the deficit from my Republican friends, I love it. I reduced it $350 billion in my first year in office. And we're on track to reduce it by the end of September by another $1,500,000,000. We'll continue to monitor ever. the president uh, for comments about the economic growth, but obviously some remarks centered around uh, rebuilding the economy post-COVID, uh, vaccinations, uh, the ways in which employment has returned, uh, D, but really centered around deficit reduction as a framework, arguing that in the prior White House, a deficit increased every year has come down since he's been in office with a nod, uh, perhaps to senators like Joe Manchin, but uh, targeting President Trump in ways we've not yet heard uh, from POTUS lately. Dee? Yeah, and the, these comments coming ahead of that second day of the FOMC meeting where we'll get a decision. The Nasdaq uh, down about one and a third of a percent. And, you know, I just want to go back to the ride sharing companies. It's astonishing how much they're losing today. A lift, nearly a third of its value. And, John, the problem there was that they couldn't really answer a direct question on the call last night. And in a way, neither can Uber and because they don't know in terms of how much they're going to have to spend in terms of drivers, incentives, regulation, et cetera. And that's maybe one of the core problems of the entire ride sharing industry. There's just still so many unknowns. Yeah, I mean, a big part of it, look at Uber and Lyft, their business is more of a mud wrestling match than the sprint that was kind of promised pre-IPO. Remember all that talk about driverless mm -hmm. cars and changing transportation the world over and kind of like one mega app that got you everywhere? Th that's not what's happening here. Um, they're not breaking away and changing the world. But then at the same time, you've got Airbnb that doesn't have to pay property mm -hmm. owners 
to list their properties, right? Uh, the, the incentives are yeah. a bit more aligned for them, and uh, things are lining up for more efficient use of that capital under Airbnb's platform. Plus, they're, they're arguably the most successful direct-to-consumer name. Even though they're not selling a product, it's a service. They're not having to pay so much for marketing. They're that first mm-hmm. stop, uh, and, and people are coming back again and again and using them for an extended period of time. And profits, John. That's key. <laughs> more profitable. Eventually, investors like those. Yes. Uh, so, despite Lyft's insistence that big investments are eventually going to pay off, clearly the market has turned today and in the last six months uh, as the growth stories coming out of tech uh, need a little bit meat, more meat on the bone. Joining us now, somebody who has made headlines over the last few days on this very topic and who has invested in a lot of this innovation, Benchmark Capital's Bill Gurley. Bill, good morning. Um, so, uh, good to see you after a while. Let's start broadly with what's happening in this market and sort of people's expectations of what should be happening uh, with, with valuations going up and what eventually happens in the real world. H- how do you read the market today in the context of what's happening to Uber, Lyft, and then on the other side, Airbnb? Yeah, well, that's, there's a lot in that question. I'll start with just where I think we are from a venture cycle perspective. People talk all the time about how venture cyclical, but what I don't think they realize is it, the pattern really resembles more of a sawtooth than a sine wave. We tend to put risk on very slowly over a very long period of time. And it's really hard to know when that's going to come off. And But when it does come off, it tends to come off in a singular moment or what feels like a singular moment. So um, many people will highlight that, that I myself was worried about valuations five or six years ago. Um, so you could say, well, it was way too early. And, and I certainly didn't change what we were doing from a venture perspective. Um, but when it does come off like it has in the past few days, and this was the reason that I that I put that tweet out, um, people need to adjust their expectations like really fast, especially in the private companies. And there's this remarkable false security that comes from the fact that you don't have your price trading every day, where you may think that your company still worth what it was last time you raised money money. But if your peer group of public companies are all down 60 to 70 percent, guess what? You are, too. You just don't know it. And it's super important to know where you are. Um, it's super important to know if that dollar capital you raised yesterday um, costs like a third the price of the dollar you'll need to raise in the future, because then you might want to be a lot more conservative about how you operate. So let's translate that even for public market investors. What do you say to a stitch fix, which I know is uh, an investment of yours uh, that's had a really rough go in the public market right now and is trying to, I imagine, you know, retool and um, and sort of realign its its model for what consumers want right now. I mean, to to what degree do they need to take a signal from what the public markets are saying? To what degree is it really about getting that fit between the market and the product? that I, I do think it translates into the public market, and and you guys have been talking about this on air. Um, you know, when you have a fraudy world and everything trades on price to revenue multiples, um, people you know talk about all kind of numbers and they don't talk about the bottom line. So you have a ton of you know this adjusted that you know, and and people want you know real earnings. They want real free cash flow now, and so 
all these companies that have lived in this, you know, high froth environment for the past decade, um, they kind of have to readjust. And I think the sooner they do it, the better. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy when when everyone in your organization is operating in a singular fashion for 10 years. I give a lot of credit uh, to Brian Chesky and the quarter they put together at Airbnb. It was super impressive. Yeah, what's interesting about them is they really did take that valuation hit in the private markets before they went public. When it comes to Uber, Bill, uh, a lot of that froth was actually in the private markets. And, you know, it has been lagging. Spoke to Dara this morning, who said that they will eventually get to net income profitability. Uh, We don't really know when, but what do you think, even if it gets there, what's the company worth? Obviously, you invested in it when it was promised to be this disruptor that was looking at autonomous driving. Now it kind of feels like a platform with an expensive labor problem. What's it worth? Well, I, I I don't think that's actually what came out in the past 24 hours. So, you know, one of the things that I've always believed and one of the reasons why I've been such a big marketplace investor is that these um, networks are susceptible to network effects where, you know, you get a winner take most where you have the scale provider uh, have an advantage. And one of the negatives of the environment we've been in that I think we're no longer in is that you can spend billions and billions of dollars on this kind of mass subsidization. And I think it it that perverts, you know, what would otherwise play out in local markets. I looked today, last night, the Lyft and today with Uber and what Dara put up, um, the mobility unit at Uber is growing way faster than Lyft at this point in time. Lyft talked about needing to subsidize supply and DAR didn't have a problem at all. So I think what we may be seeing is a settling down as the, the right. overt amount of capital are being pulled out of the system where, you know, but, Buffett talks about the wave going out and you get to see what people really look yeah. like. I think we're starting to see what the business really looks like. So I'm actually quite hopeful. I, I suppose. That may be true, but the wave hasn't exactly gone all the way out yet. And I think if or I wonder if Uber's, you know, biggest strength is its network effect. Now that it's not doing autonomous driving anymore, Tesla's working on robo taxis. Does that get disrupted or taken away? Well, I've been pretty outspoken on this. I think we're 20, 30 years away from full self-driving personally. Um, So it's not something that I've been worried about. I actually think it's a problem that could be solved um, quite well with an open source approach um, like it's being done in China. So, But I I don't think, I've I've never considered that a big risk for the company. Going back to the network effect thing, think about it from a driver perspective. if, if you feel like one of the players is accelerating away from the other, aren't you going to spend more of your time investing in that platform, getting your reputation up on that platform? And then, as Dara said, you also but, have the opportunity to do delivery and driving. So you have more opportunity, more density. All those things matter for a driver. And so even if someone if Lyft off, is all of a sudden paying you more. Yeah, but it's incremental but you, subsidization. If, if Lyft is going to pay you more. Assume, assume the drivers are intelligent, which I will. Um, they know it's subsidization. They know it's temporal. I mean, take a look at that Lyft quarter. They had a negative 150 million in free cash flow. Uber had positive 15, and then another 30 million on capex. That's almost 200 million in a quarter. Um, and they say it's going up. This isn't going to go on forever. They they have two billion in cash. They can't spend a billion a year in negative free cash flow. This is my point. I think. All that stupidity may be coming to an end in terms of gross subsidization. And this may be the perfect opportunity to pick up on Uber. That's interesting, Bill. You know, how would you advise companies to shift from growth to liquidity? 
in terms of their focus. Is it too late? Uh, Carvana is being used as a cautionary example now of a company yeah. that didn't raise money until they really needed it, in the words of Morgan Stanley today, uh, and, and obviously in a much more challenging high-yield environment. I mean, anytime you know that you're choosing to execute in a model that's super aggressive where you're investing forward and doing that in the public market, um, you're more susceptible to risk when the winds change as they have here. And the only way that you can start to get out of that is to either move towards free, free cash flow positivity or to provide some type of confidence to the street, you know, based on unit economics contribution margin that you're going to get there. Um, but but Everyone knows this, right? When we go from these very, very positive markets to these glass half empty markets, every question skeptical, every assumption skeptical, and it, and it puts the onus back on the company to prove that they're right. And so um, it's a tough position when you've, when you've heavily invested like that and the winds change. Bill, what do you see happening on the VC side? I'm starting to hear more and more that uh, investors are being choosier about who gets more capital and that we're entering a phase where those who have been strong up to this point and well capitalized might end up getting better capitalized and buying out some of the smaller companies um, at, at lower uh, valuations than the smaller companies had hoped that they would have. Um, are you hearing any of that? I mean, I know you, you guys invest way at the earlier stage, but um, yeah. you, you hear a lot. Yeah, um, I haven't seen that yet. And and what I talked about earlier about how slow people are to come around from a perception standpoint, unless they're running out of money and then they're doing like an auction sale and we may see some of those. Um, they they don't. If, if you spent the past three or four years thinking and we'll take a smaller company thinking you're worth five hundred million dollars and that market clearing price on M&A is 100 and you've raised 150 and have 150 in lick pref in front of common no one's eager to go run that sale experiment and so it takes a while for everyone to get their expectations around the fact that we're in a new world order and 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 you know there's this great phrase that uh, good judgment comes from experience which comes from bad judgment i only know all this cuz i've lived through it twice you know and i've seen, I've seen how long it takes um and so I, that may end up happening, but it hasn't happened yet. I think a bigger question people have is whether the broader um, limited partnership market will keep funding, you know, what's been going on in the late stage market, which has been really the price setter for all of these companies. And right. I think that's still a big question mark. So what role do, uh, do IPOs, uh, how many of them come to market and what their performance is, or direct listings, if you prefer, uh, what role do those play in how all of that plays out and how quickly? Well, of course, I prefer the direct listing, as you <laughs> already know. But um, it, I think it takes a while there, too, for the same exact reason, which is all these private marks were made and they sit in the head of the founder and the executive team and, and they know their percentage ownership and they think about their own net worth. And unfortunately, people mark to market in their head. And so when the world shifts like this, you know, when a SaaS company used to be high growth SaaS company used to be 30 times revenue and now it's eight. That there's a lot of reframing. There's a lot of adjustment that has to go on in people's minds. And so, uh, unfortunately, I think the IPO and direct listing market um, get delayed as people work that out in their heads. Hey, finally, Billy, you know, in your tweet, which, is, which was a remarkable uh, series of tweets, you talk about this generation of investors who have been sort of hypnotized by the latter half of this bull run. 
I just wonder, don't you think there's some of them who have at least heard about the great financial crisis or certainly the, I mean, why has that history been so erased from their experience, do you think? Well, I mean, part of it, you know, is simply that they don't have the exposure. I mean, founders of, of these companies are often quite young. They might be in their in their 20s or even teens occasionally. And so they just their, their only perspective on the market and valuations is what they've seen in their life. And so it's it's not it's not like intentional naivete. It's just that's the frame of reference that they have. And they hadn't gone off and read a Buffett book. And if they did, they probably wouldn't believe it. Right. Because it's so foreign <laughs> to what they've seen. Um, and so now, you know, now things shift and, and there's a new reality on the field, just like the old reality that we had to play. Now we have to play this this reality on the field. All right, Bill. Good judgment comes from experience, which comes from bad judgment. Made for this market. Bill Gurley, thank you. Thanks, John. Still to come this morning, we'll dive further into Airbnb's quarter. Plus, the Nasdaq on pace for gains this week despite today's move lower. Dow as well trying to end five tough weekly losses. Stay with us. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. It has been a tough year for love. Julie is going to have more on why Match is falling in just a moment, plus a look at both Airbnb and AMD. But first, let's get a news update with our Frank Collins. Hey, Frank. Hey, good morning to you, Carl. Here's your news update for this hour. Around two and a half hours from now, the Federal Reserve will announce its decision on interest rates. A half a point hike for its Fed funds target is widely expected, along with a move to start reducing the central bank's $9 trillion asset portfolio. Wall Street will be looking for any hints about how aggressive it will be with future hikes as it tries to slow down inflation. Intuit will pay $141 million to more than 4 million TurboTax customers who used what the company called a free addition to create a return and were then told they actually had to pay to file it. It's part of a settlement with all 50 states that requires Intuit to suspend its free, free, free ad campaign. The company, which did not admit any wrongdoing, says it's already changed most of its practices and expects a minimal impact to its business. And Ford's April sales fell more than 10%, but that's actually an improvement from the declines of more than 20% in February and in March. The company, along with every other automaker, has been struggling with a semiconductor chip shortage. That's the very latest. Carl, back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks very much. Let's turn to AMD this morning. Shares are higher, although not as much as in the pre-market after beating the street in Q1. Lisa Sue did join us on Squawk in the Street today with a look at how their acquisition of Xilinx factored into the quarter. Take a listen. Xilinx grew, um, you know, on, on a pro forma basis, 22 percent um, in the first quarter. Uh, we now see them growing sort of low 20s, um, which is a great growth rate. And if you add that on top of, you know, the AMD business, we're going to grow, you know, 60 percent year over year into 2022. Uh, joining us for more on AMD, Cowan Managing Director and Senior Semis Analyst uh, Matt Ramsey. Matt, good to have you. Um, interesting point about Xilinx, their prior revenue Growth view was up 31. It's essentially doubled it. Is it that good of a fit? Uh, good morning, Carl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it is. We've been a, a big proponent of the uh, AMD Xilinx merger for a long time. It, it brings AMD into some diversified markets, um, auto, industrial, um, aerospace and defense, some, some non-consumer markets at really high 70% plus gross margins. And as Lisa mentioned in the spot that you just did there, um, because of, of some substrate supply um, investments that AMD's made, I think they can open up some new supply for Xilinx to grow into the demand they have. And 
and, and ASP should be really good given the, the supply demand gap out there. It's it's a great fit, and, and I think we'll we'll be looking for them to talk more about integrating the two roadmaps together, particularly in the data center space going forward. Right. It's been a series of uh, lower highs and lower lows ever since 160 uh, last Thanksgiving. Now we get more chatter about a cautious view on PCs, cautious view across the industry on gaming. How big of a threat is it? Yeah, I think from my perspective, it was it was kind of the, the needle that they needed to thread last night on the call. You got big upside from the server business, the most important business at AMD, and, and a conservative view on PCs, which I think the market was pricing in anyway. Our team's modeling down mid single digits for PC units. Um, Lisa talked on the call last night about uh, high single digit assumptions in their model for the PC TAM. But the fact that due to share gains and enterprise notebook um, and some shift from Chrome toward enterprise and the overall market mix, that they're still going to grow their PC revenue this year. That'll be a nice complement to a server business that's going to probably more than double. Um, so it, it is a risk. Um, I think investors have very much calculated that risk, especially with uh, some of the demand destruction in Eastern Europe because of the war and, and some um, zero COVID shutdowns in China that have affected supply in the short term. Um, admitting to the risk and taking a conservative view is about um, as good as they could have done last night for AMD. And I think they'll do they'll still grow that business this year. Now, Matt, so often these days we're talking about companies that are richly valued versus those that have high quality revenue and earnings. I mean, arguably, AMD still falls into both camps. I think that the PE, they're trading at around 21 times uh, 2022 uh, earnings and, and 18 times 2023. Is that okay in this market? Um, can you buy it at these levels that are so much lower than, than where it was before? So you might think of it as a discount, even though, you know, by historical measures, that's still kind of a rich valuation. No, it's a great question, John. Um, I, I think you can. Um, sub 20 times PE on, on $5 in earnings next year, give or take, um, is great value for AMD. If you think about where their most important business growth is in the server business, that's more than, than doubling, as I mentioned. You take profitability of that business. You mentioned um, strong profitability in the numbers here for AMD. We're, we're looking at a server business that's going to double in revenue and have operating margins um, expand by 15 points. Um, you're adding Xilinx that has extraordinarily healthy margins and, uh, and much more broad exposure. Uh, and then you have the opportunity going forward for them to still enter new parts of the TAM. They're, they're underrepresented in enterprise, both in PCs and server. They haven't yet got into the networking and, and telco space in the server market, which Xilinx can bring them into. And, and there's a lot of growth left here um, that the valuation, I don't think, represents um, as much as the stock is pulled back. Matt, appreciate it. Uh, always, always a fascinating print. There's a lot in there that speaks to the broader industry, too. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Up next, stay with us here. We're talking Airbnb. Yeah, that's a pun. And don't miss Expedia CEO Peter Kern right here on Tech Check tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern. Don't go away. Let's get to another marketplace mover, Airbnb. The stock is in the green this morning after reporting a solid quarter with revenue growth of 70%. Booking surpassing pre-pandemic levels, topping $100 million for the very first time. It is outperforming the broader markets. Here to discuss Tapas Capital's Greg Greeley, who is the former president of Airbnb. And he also spent two decades at Amazon. Greg, it's great to see you. Uh, you Likewise. left Airbnb shortly before the IPO. Uh, it was a very different company. Some people actually questioned its financial discipline. 
During the pandemic, though, it made a lot of cuts to its workforce, its marketing budget, scaled back on hotel ambitions. Um, are you surprised by the pivot you've seen Brian Chesky make while leading this company? Uh, no, actually not at all. Brian's been very um, focused and very clear on what the vision was. And this is going on for years about, um, about how Airbnb can really be a great um, extension platform. With that pivot, though, what Brian recognized, and he's highlighted multiple times, is that travel has fundamentally changed. And um, Airbnb is in a great position to kind of play out on those opportunities as people are living and working remotely and doing so on Airbnb. So then, Greg, I wonder, why did you leave just ahead of the IPO, um, especially when the company has been able to sort of even grow from that point and its valuation um, has just grown so much also in the in the public markets? Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of what Airbnb has done. I, I left for personal reasons um, unrelated to, you know, the, the vision. It was very clear that Airbnb was going to be successful. And, um, you know, I've been very supportive and very, very happy with that. Hey, Greg, I wonder, I mean, what do you think the model would look like today had it not been for COVID and this massive acceleration of the ability to work from anywhere? I mean, the tools were already in place, but getting that through people's heads almost required, I mean, this quickly almost required something like what we, we went through. I mean, what would the company have looked like without it? Um, that probably It's probably difficult to speculate on that. I think what's what's is important to see is that what you're seeing is this, you know, the, the, the pent up demand for travel right now. We've had this two year period where, you know, people were afraid to travel and, and the Airbnb team have been doing some great work on preparing for that. And there's just a, you know, I see it when you look at the um, Expedia results. I just talked to the CEO of Get Your Guide and everyone is um, really seeing the benefits of, of this pent up demand for travel. And Airbnb in particular has got that unique category of being able to live on Airbnb. Greg, I wonder what you think about the impact of inflation and higher mortgage rates on Airbnb's business. When we look at inflation from the perspective of an Uber Lyft, it seems to be having the impact of raising prices for them, certainly when it comes to gas, uh, you know, tight labor market, having to do with their driver supply, seems to me to potentially have a very different impact on Airbnb and demand for uh, its inventory. What do you see? Well, I think when you look across all the marketplaces, uh, the, the consumer marketplaces, you're seeing a very different impact. Certainly with um, Amazon and eBay, you know, there was a real bump from the stimulus check, uh, checks last year that are driving um, some tough comps now. Um, there's this pent-up demand for travel that's helping Airbnb, Expedia, Booking.com, um, and others, which is which is very helpful. What is very clear is that um, we may have pulled forward some of the consumer purchases um, from 2022 into 2021, but people have saved up for travel. And there's going to continue to be, you know, and the thing that the marketplace does is as people are tightening their budget, if they need to, they're finding a broad selection on the marketplaces for, you know, if they need to trade down on their travel selection. Um, when it comes to you know, higher prices and mortgages, I think it's good to remember that, you know, these um, services like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb were all born out of a very tough and difficult recession. And I do expect you'll see as, as um, you know, as people are grappling with um, some of these inflationary pressures, um, that'll actually be an incentivized supply on Lyft and Uber and Airbnb as well. 
Greg, of the uh, marketplaces that you just mentioned, uh, Uber, Airbnb, I would also throw in Lyft and DoorDash, there seems to be just such a dispersion in valuation where investors are valuing the likes of Airbnb and DoorDash so much higher. What do you think is going on at the ride-sharing companies? Why do you think that they haven't really been able to catch investor attention? Well, um, certainly you've got a different dynamic going on. Um, you know, when people were afraid of, you know, of, of you know, during the pandemic, afraid of contracting COVID, you definitely saw pressure on both the rider side and the driver side. And as you look at the ride sharing um, platforms, they're definitely getting back to pandemic levels, you know, pre-pandemic levels. The Uber's above pre-pandemic level, Lyft's just below from the standpoint of the number of drivers. And I think as people get more comfortable in those environments, you're gonna see continued growth there. As I mentioned, there's, there's certainly a tailwind for a lot of the COVID or pandemic related um, services um, in the delivery. I think people will find that they like that convenience. I think it's still, you'll still see growth in there, but I think you know, what that next 12 months is, as people work through um, some of the economic realities um, here as, as, a, as travel opens up and as businesses open up, I think you'll see a little bit of different um, re re reaction or customer behavior on each of those platforms. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being with us today. Talk to you again soon, we hope. Greg Greeley. My pleasure. Thank you. After the break, Roku looks to invest more in content. But first, let's get a check on crypto. Tech Check is back in just a moment. We've got a leadership change and some poor guidance over at Match today, and shares are down. Julia Borston's got more on the quarter. Hi, Julia. Hey, Carl. That's right. Shares were down as much as 8% yesterday in After Hours Trading after reporting its results. That stock is now down about 3%, and this despite Match beating on the top and bottom line. Now, here is what is weighing on Match shares. The company forecast weaker than expected second quarter revenue and guided to full year revenue growth at the bottom end of its previously shared range. It also announced that CEO Shardubi is stepping down to be replaced by Zenga's president, Bernard Kim, at the end of May. This is an unexpected change, though Doobie stressed that it was simply for personal reasons. Now, another area of concern, the company estimates a $10 million impact to revenue per quarter from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And Google is moving towards mandating that apps use its App Store billing service, which Match says could result in $6 million a month in costs. But on the upside, the company also saying that they believe that EU regulation, new EU regulation, could force Google to change that policy so those costs could end up being short-lived. Also, with Match approaching 100 million monthly active users, analysts are focused on the fact that those are mostly Tinder users and that app continues to see solid user growth. Wedbush saying that Match continues to make progress with Tinder exploring other features that are more social than they are about dating, and other analysts are pointing to potential in a female-focused Bumble rival launching from Tinder in the second half of the year. Guys? This makes me a little worried, Julia, when, when you know, companies with very focused mission, okay, it's about dating, they start having a lot of mission creep, and Bumble's had some of this, and on Match, like, do, do you want to meet work friends on Match? Is that really? I don't know. It seems like crossing the streams, like, like, you know, Facebook dating. Uh, you, you don't want that either. Uh, plus, when you got Tinder direct revenue up 18% year over year, the other brands up 22%. I wonder about the, the health of um, one of their kind of more popular properties. 
Yeah, look, Tinder is really the heart of that business right now, but I think you make an interesting point about mission creep. And if you look at some of these features that Tinder and some of these other apps have been investing in, I mean, the Tinder feature makes it seem kind of more like a like a TikTok competitor. And it just makes me wonder if there's sort of this TikTokification of everything. Everyone's chasing this super short form content for all of these uh, short attention span. Uh, uh, so the, the new generation of people with incredibly short attention spans who um, need to be engaged somehow. So I think that's the question is, are they including these features to make the app more appealing? Or is it really just about, about mission creep, as you said, John? The TikTokification of everything. I like that, Julia. Uh, meanwhile, the Dow just turning negative. After the break, we're going to talk more on what today's Fed decision means for tech. Despite the recent selling, though, the S&P technology sector is still positive over the last 12 months. We are back in just a moment. Time now for a gut check on Roku. Investors have been seeing stars lately. Management might be, too. Reports the company is partnering with PE firm Apollo Global in pursuit of a minority stake in TV network and streamer Stars. That bid coming just months after Lionsgate Entertainment announced it was weighing either spinning off or selling Stars entirely. And this wouldn't be the first time Roku and Lionsgate have worked together, agreeing last month on a multi-year deal to air films immediately after their first viewing on Stars. Shares lower this morning, down just about, just shy of 3%, Carl. Uh, meantime, John, the Fed announcement in about two hours. Of course, it's been the prospect of higher inflation and higher rates that first turned tech lower and sparked what's now become incredibly six months of selling. Our Mike Santoli is looking at that trend ahead of the announcement, Mike. Yeah, Mar uh, Carl, of course, uh, it pulled the leash tight on the overall market and the stuff that ran the farthest, which is tech, which is a disinflationary beneficiary and obviously uh, has highest valuations, got hit the hardest. Really been very well aligned over the last six months. Remember, November, December of last year is when the Fed really pivoted hard and started to raise the market's expectations of where rates could go. So here you see the price of long-term Treasury yields. As that goes down, of course, yields are going up, and you see it against the NASDAQ 100 very, very much in sync. Now, bonds don't normally move this dramatically. This has been one of the biggest bond crashes in, uh, in decades, actually. And so if you look at it over a longer-term span, over two years, you see, yes, there's a vague relationship between higher bond prices and higher tech share prices, uh, but it's not quite as stark. So here you see uh, you see the Nasdaq 100 rising uh, right here as Treasury uh, prices are going down. So in other words, it was not always matched up perfectly. A lot else going on, growth expectations, people crowding uh, into FANG type names. And obviously, right now, when you've seen a 20% decline, 20 plus percent decline, Carl, in the Nasdaq 100, a lot more matters than just where rates are, uh, because you've gone these long periods of time when the Nasdaq is doing its own thing uh, relative to what Treasuries are up to. Are you a fan of the uh, pattern recognition some are drawing now that the S&P rallies last two Fed meetings yeah. in, the, in the ensuing couple of weeks, maybe about 6 percent? Very conscious of it, especially in mid-March when we got the confirmation of the expected rate hike and the market had been very weak going into it. So it's a similar setup. Sentiment is very, very slanted to the negative side. However, does the market give you the same play three meetings in a row? That's the other nagging question. But I think the setup is there to have a little bit of relief after this meeting. All right. John, over to you. Yeah, now, folks, if you missed our interview with Benchmark's Bill Gurley this morning, it's okay. It's all right. And, and your DVR is broken or whatever. We're a podcast, too. So listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Meanwhile, Tech Check is back in a moment.
One more thing, and that is your daily Twitter takeover update. The Journal reporting that Elon Musk has been discussing an IPO for Twitter in as little as three years. That is, of course, if his bid does go through. The news comes amid reports that Musk is asking private equity firms and wealthy individuals to contribute more financing. We're already getting reports about the exit plan. Uh, guys, we didn't have time with Bill Gurley, but, you know, he's an early Twitter investor. He expressed some enthusiasm about the Musk takeover. wonder if he's been hit up. <laughs> D, this is ridiculous. Uh, from a guy, Elon Musk, who was saying not three weeks ago that buying Twitter is not a way to make money. Now, before it's fixed, Carl, he, he's talking about IPO in three years. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, there's a, a lot of reporting. Going, yeah, I mean, he did tweet about potentially charging uh, commercial and government users, even as he makes it free. Uh, for, I guess, I guess you'd call them retail users. One thing we didn't mention, D, was his tweet about NFTs and him changing his avatar uh, <laughs> and saying that, hmm, seems kind of fungible. It seems kind of fungible. Yeah, I mean, it's just been, it's been a gift to us business reporters watching Musk tweet and his reaction to all of this. Who really knows how it shaped up? It sure is fun to speculate, John. But um, we've seen, as we mentioned, him miss targets. Maybe it'll be three years. Maybe it'll be never. That's the thing. You just never know. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep that never on your, on your bare side of, of the thesis. Yeah. Also, his Freemason joke. Uh, somewhat funny. Um, we could, let's check a couple of stocks we've been talking about. Airbnb, AMD, uh, strong earnings to the upside, but they are well off their highs of the session. Still in the green, though, Carl, so far. Uh, indeed, guys. And by the way, tonight uh, the parade rolls on. Uh, eBay, Etsy, Corvo, Twilio, among a bunch of other names. We should mention oil came off a bit from the intraday highs as we got slightly better than expected inventory numbers. And the VIX still below 29 with uh, two hours to go until we get the Fed and another 30 minutes after that for the press. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.